Morning, church. How's everybody doing today? You're getting used to that. It's good. It's great to be back. Um, again, we had uh, uh, just a lot of driving, but it, uh, overall it was a good trip. It's always great to be with family, uh, to be able to spend time with them. And I really appreciate Josh filling in last week. Uh, if you were able to be here, I know you appreciate that. Let Josh know how much you appreciate him. Thank you, man. Yeah, you can give me that five later, Josh. Thanks, man. So, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but I really do appreciate him filling in while I, while I was gone. We are very blessed with uh, both Josh and Steve um, being in, in our midst, and as well as Garen, who can fill in at any point. Um, and so I greatly appreciate uh, that God has blessed us in that way. Got a lot to get through today, so I just want to dive in and we'll, we'll kind of begin. You know, I read, about, I read about a community of believers that the cool thing was they were just so devoted to God that their life together was just charged with the Spirit's power. And in that body of Jesus' followers... People loved each other with a, just a radical kind of love. I mean, they took off their masks and they shared their lives together. They laughed, they cried, they prayed, they sang, they served together in authentic Christian fellowship. And the cool thing was that those who had more shared with those who had less until social economic barriers just began to kind of melt away. People related together in ways that literally bridged gender, and race, and they were known for celebrating their cultural differences. Now, you may be thinking, where in the world did we find a church like that? Because I don't know about you, but that's the kind of church I want to be, right? I mean, that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. So where do we find that? Well, the cool thing is we find that church in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. And in this chapter, it tells us about this community of Jesus' followers, this church. And they offered unbelievers a vision of life that was so bold, it was so creative, it was so dynamic that they couldn't resist it. I mean, the outside world saw and they experienced and they just could not resist what they were seeing in the lives of these new believers. In fact, in verse 47 of Acts chapter 2, and if you got your Bibles, just open them up to Acts chapter 2, because we're going to spend some time just basically in one of those verses. But in verse 47, it tells us this. It says that the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Now, I want you to think about that. I want you to let that sink in. Every single day, God was adding people to his church. Every single day, people were being saved. Every single day, people were being baptized into Jesus. Every day. I mean, how awesome would that be? How awesome would it be for you to be up here at the church because one of your friends is getting immersed into Christ because they just surrendered to him? And gave their life to him. How awesome would that be? How awesome would it be for you to get on our Facebook page every night and see somebody who had been baptized, who had surrendered to Jesus? 
I mean, how cool would that be? And you say, well, I don't know if that could happen. Tell that to the Spirit. Tell that to God. Because I know it can. Which brings up this question that a lot of us have, and that is simply that question. Can it happen today? Can that kind of thing happen in our lifetime? Some of you may remember the story, but it's one of my favorite stories. It was about a guy who, for the last 15 years of his life, him and his wife lived literally in downtown Manhattan. They worked uh, in the corporate world. They lived in an apartment downtown. His son now was six years old, seven years old, right in there. All he had known for those six or seven years of his life was concrete and cars and buildings and lights and noise. I mean, that's all they had experienced because that's where they lived, and they really never got out of that. Well, this guy was raised on a farm, and so he wanted to have his son experience life outside the city. And so he set up a camping trip, and he took his son camping, and they went up into the mountains out in New York State. And they camped by this beautiful lake. And before the little guy went to bed, his dad simply said, if you'll get a good night's sleep, the next tomorrow morning, you're going to see something incredible. And so he fell right to sleep. And about five in the morning, his dad wakes him up. And he gets him out, keeps him wrapped in his sleeping bag because it's pretty chilly out. And they come over and they sit by the fire and they just wait. They just wait. And pretty soon it begins to happen. As all of a sudden, in the horizon, the sky begins to change colors. And it goes from darkness to, to bluish and then to these colors of reds and oranges and yellows. And then it happens. The sun begins to pop up over the trees. And the whole valley is lit up. And with every moment, you could see that little guy just, just excited and filled with awe and filled with joy and not knowing what to say. And finally, when that sun popped over those trees, that little guy looked at his dad and said, Daddy, Daddy, do it again. Do it again. And I say that for this reason. Because as I look at the book of Acts and I see... All the incredible things that God was doing. Let me tell you, it makes my heart cry out, Daddy, do it again. Do it again. Here's the thing. I believe with all my heart that it can happen today. In fact, I believe that God has already begun to put some things into motion in this place. That's why I believe that you're not here by accident. Whether you're a visitor or whether you've been here for a long time, you are not here by accident. Because God's got something special in mind for this place. He's got something amazing in mind for this place. And it involves every single one of us. Why? Because it's up to us. It's up to us to begin to live it out in and through our lives. But the question again is this. How do we make it happen? Yeah, it happened then. But how do we make it happen today? Just keep that question in the back of your mind for just a moment. 
You see, we're entering the final leg of our summer-long study called the Dog Days of Summer. And we've been learning how to avoid that summertime spiritual slump. And today we begin part three, which is called Devote. And I believe that over the next four weeks, we are going to be able to answer that question. How do we make Acts 2 happen again? How do we make it happen again? Now, as you come into the book of Acts, let me give you just a little bit of background. In chapter 1, before Jesus ascends to the Father, he commissions, he, he talks to his guys. He says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you in, in, in just a few days. It's going to happen. Don't worry. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. And as you move into chapter 2, that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in the form of this fire. He calls it tongues of fire. And Peter is able to speak in, in a language that so that everybody can understand and everybody can hear. And as he preaches, he preaches Jesus. Crucified and resurrected. And he preaches that they had crucified and killed the very Son of God. And you got to remember, this is the same Peter who just 50 days earlier had denied even knowing Jesus. And now he's standing up in front of all the people on Pentecost. And he's saying, you have crucified the very Son of God, but God raised him from the dead. And when the people heard that, the scripture says that they were cut to the heart and cried out, what must we do? And Peter said, in verse 38 of Acts 2, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sin. And as we know, 3,000, at least 3,000, probably more, 3,000 came, accepted Jesus, was baptized into Christ, and the church began. And then we read in verse 42, it's an awesome verse, because it sets the stage for the explosive growth that would take place in Jerusalem over the next several years. Look what Luke writes. He says, they devoted themselves, in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, I love that word devoted because it, it's the idea of giving constant attention to, of being steadfast, the idea of persevering. In other words, these new Jesus followers, they were committed to making this new relationship with Jesus as strong as it could be, regardless of what might happen to them. And if we want this to happen in our church today, then let me tell you, We've got to be devoted to the very same things. You want to know how it can happen? This is how it happens. We begin to devote ourselves to the things that are going to change our lives and the lives of those around us. That's why for the next four weeks, these are the things that we're going to dive into. 
so that we can see just how devoted we are as individuals as well as how devoted we are as a church. So as we begin today, I just want us to focus on this first part, which is simply this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they devoted themselves to the word of God, God's truth. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Father, I just thank you for this time, and I thank you for these next few moments. And God, may you speak through me. May you use me and use my words. May my words be your words, Lord, not mine. May we be brought closer to you. May we begin to understand the importance of your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Tim Hansel tells a story in his book, Holy Sweat. He said a close friend of his was going back to his 40-year high school reunion. Let me ask you, how many of you have ever been back to one of your high school reunions? Have you? I've only been back, I think, to one out of all the years. Never desired to go back anymore. <laughs> anyway, this guy, his friend was going back to his 40-year high school reunion. So this is what Tim writes in his book. He says, for months, my friend had saved to take his wife back to the place and the people he had left four decades before. The closer the time came for the reunion, the more excited he became, thinking of all the wonderful stories he would hear about the changes and the accomplishments these old friends would tell him. He wondered if any of them had encountered this Jesus who had changed him so radically. The day came to leave, and Tim goes, I drove them to the airport. Their energy was almost contagious. I said, I'll pick you up on Sunday evening when you get back, and you can tell me all about it. Have a great time. The next week rolled around, and Sunday evening came, and he said, I watched them get off the plane, and my friend seemed almost despondent. He said, I almost didn't want to ask, but finally I said, well, how was the reunion? He just simply said, Tim... It was one of the saddest experiences of my life. I go, what happened? It wasn't what happened, what, but what didn't happen. It's been 40 years, 40 years, and they haven't changed. They had simply gained weight, changed clothes, gotten jobs, but they hadn't really changed. And what I experienced was maybe one of the most tragic things I could ever imagine about life. For reasons I can't fully understand, it seems as though some people choose not to change. There was a long silence as we walked to the car. On the drive home, he turned to me and simply said, I never, ever want that to be said of me. Life is too precious. Life is too important. Life is too short. He said, Tim, if, if you ever see me so stagnant, Stagnant like those people were. I hope you give me a swift kick where I need it the most. I hope you'll love me enough to challenge me to keep growing. John Stott once asked a church he was speaking to this question. What is the greatest need of the church today? This was his answer. The church needs a greater number of deep Christians. Christians that are not shallow or superficial, but deep and committed. 
Richard Foster made a similar point in his book, Celebration of Discipline. This is what he wrote. He said, the desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. That need hasn't changed. We need Christians who want to do more than just float through their life. Who want to allow their spiritual roots to go deep in search of the things of God. And let me tell you, the only way that's going to happen is if we devote ourselves to the truths of God's word. And we allow that truth to literally transform who we are. And so as we think about being devoted to the truths of God, here's some big questions that I think we need to, that we need to ask ourselves. One is simply this. Do you get excited about this book? This book right here that's called the Bible, that's called God's Word. Do you get excited about it in your life? Do you believe that God's truth is a source for all, all ages, all types, all situations. Do you believe that? Are you convinced that his truth is the foundation for our daily moment-by-moment lives? Do you believe that? Is this the building blocks that we build upon? These truths that are found in this book, do you believe it? Because if you don't, transformation will never take place. Look what the Bible says about itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. I want you to remember that. We're going to talk about that in a moment. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's that book. That's the Bible, God's truth. You see, the Bible is the building blocks that will mold us and that will shape our lives into the very image of Jesus. And it gives us the wisdom and it gives us the confidence and it gives us the strength to live lives that, are, that go beyond the status quo. Why? Because its author, God, listen to this, breathed his very life into it. He breathed his very life into it. Picture it this way. I think we all know how important breath is to our health and our life, right? I mean, we all know that. We experience that. I mean, if you've ever been swimming in the ocean and then and been just knocked silly by a huge wave, you know what it's like to fight for breath. And let's say that the worst happens and you've got to be rescued and you need mouth to mouth. And even though the lifeguard who rescued you is putting their breath into you, get this, you will not be alive until you draw your own breath once again. And that's how life works. And the cool thing is this, the scripture is God's breath. It is God's life. And it's infused with the very life of God. And why is that so important for us to understand? It's important because it shows that the Bible is not man putting his words into God's mouth. Instead, it's God breathing his words, his life, into every word to feed us everything we need to do life. 
what it is. When I was growing up, <coughs> excuse me, I was raised in a fairly musical home. Uh, my grandfather played the violin, played the fiddle. It all depended on the circumstance which it was called, right? My dad played guitar, played bass. I played guitar, played bass. My sister played piano. One of my, uh, one of my grandfather's uh, cousins played banjo. And probably at least once a month, we would all gather at our house when I was a kid growing up, and we had music. And I loved to hear my grandfather play. Just loved to hear him play his fiddle, his violin. We were talking one day, and he told me when I was a kid, he said, in the world of violins, he said the Stradivarius was recognized as the best. In fact, in his lifetime, Stradivarius made just over 1,100 instruments, of which 450 are known to still be in existence. But there are also many violins which bear the name Stradivarius, which were made by a company that copied his design. Those were worth between $1,000 and $2,000 and were good violins, but they were nothing like those that came from the hand of the master. In fact, if you had an original Stradivarius, it can be worth between $1 and $1.5 million. Now, I say that for this reason. Because there are a lot of so-called spiritual or religious books out there that say they have the answers to life. But let me tell you, there is only one original copy. There's only one original book. One that came from the, the very hand and breath of the master. Only one that has his life breathed into it. He's the all-seeing, he's the all-knowing, he's the all-present, he's the all-powerful God. He knows the beginning from the end. He is the one who holds the whole universe together. He's the same God who made us in his image and who created us to be in a relationship with him. And he breathes life into the truth of his word because he wants to breathe life into us. And the only way that that life can come in is by being devoted to his life-giving truth and feeding upon it every day of our lives. We've got to be willing to feed upon the truth of his word. Now, here's the cool thing about God's truth. The overall message of the Bible is really pretty simple. It's basically this. It's God saying, I'm not willing to let you go. I mean, that's really basically it, right? It's God saying, I'm not willing to let you go. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve messed up, but God didn't let them go. He finds them, covers their shame, covers their nakedness, and restores them. David messes up by committing adultery and murder, and God didn't let him go. In fact, David became known as a man after God's own heart. And all of mankind has messed up. But God said, I'm not willing to let you go. In fact, I'm going to send my son, Jesus, to buy you back from the sin debt that came because of your screw-ups and your mess-ups. 
And when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, God breathed life into all who would find his son through the truth of the word. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the word. That's the truth that we find in that book. It's all about God breathing life into every word, into every syllable, so that through it, we would find eternal life through his son, Jesus. Here's the thing. We believe this church, me, we believe that the word of God has supernatural power to do what it says it can do, to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us to be a follower of Jesus. We believe that the Bible will prepare us and equip us to do every good work. And so when we talk about the Bible, God's truth, we're not just talking about the latest and greatest self-help book or the latest and greatest podcast or about some new information we downloaded from the internet that's supposed to turn us into this beautifully built and rich new person who never has a problem. No way. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the only book, the only source for real life transformation, and it's God's word. But let me be completely honest with you. Transformation will never happen until you not only read it and you take it into your heart, but then you start breathing it out. Remember the illustration a moment ago? Of if you got mouth to mouth, you may be getting breath into you, but you're not alive until you breathe out. And so it's not just about taking in, it's also about putting it out and putting it into practice and living it in and, in, and, in and out and through your life. Think about it this way. <coughs> Excuse me. Suppose you were to buy a book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Weight Loss. Now, there may be a book out there like that, I don't know. But suppose there is, and suppose you buy that book. The Complete Idiot's Guide to Weight Loss. Now, this book is supposed to have everything you need to know to lose weight and to get in shape, right? I mean, that's what the book is. You see, the book was not written just to give you information. It was written to transform you, to cause weight loss. That's, that's the purpose of the book, is transformation. Now, let's say that you're slightly overweight, and you go away for six months, and you come back with this book. And you say, oh, this is a great book. This is the complete idiot's guide to weight loss. And I've read it from cover to cover. In fact, I've marked it up. I've highlighted it with different color highlighters. And I have a diff I've memorized different sections. It's a great book. In fact, I just started a small group. And we're studying this book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Weight Loss. And somebody looks at you and goes, you know, that's great, and I'm glad you've got the book, and I'm glad you're studying the book, but, but, but you look the same. In fact, you look like you gained weight while you were gone. Now, here's the problem. The problem is we've taken a book that was written for life change, and we've used it as a book for information. And that's exactly what we do with God's word, with God's truth. You see, the Bible may be historically accurate, but it's not just a history book. It may be scientifically accurate, but it's not just a science book. The Bible is a book about changing lives. It's about transformation. That's why God gave it to us. 
A simple principle that I learned years ago goes like this. Information plus application equals transformation. Information plus application equals transformation. The problem is, for a lot of believers, we stop with information. We just read it. And we, and we study it so that we can get smarter with it. But we never apply it. And when we don't apply it, transformation never takes place. And so don't just read the Bible and gather information. You've got to do what it says, and you've got to allow it to change who you are from the inside out. The Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. It gains the freshness of the Jordan into the Dead Sea. The problem is the Dead Sea never gives out. It has no way of releasing that. And it is dead because the water begins to evaporate. It has all these minerals. And it's literally called the Salt Sea or the Salt Lake. And nothing can grow there because it's dead. It's not that it's not fed. It's that it doesn't release to continue the flow. You probably remember this statement. You may not have liked it, but uh, you'll, you'll remember it. And that is this. Les Christie once told this in a, in a conference that I was at years ago. He said, the Dead Sea's like a lot of us. Because here's what we do with God's word. We take it in, we take it in, we take it in. But if we never give out, that really hurts us, right? He says, it's called spiritual constipation. Spiritual constipation. You take in, you take in, you take in, you never give out. And after a while, that just hurts. <laughs> that just hurts. You see, we need to be devoted to the truth of God's word and not just getting information, but applying it so that transformation can take place. Now, before we close, I want to give you some quick suggestions on how we can devote ourselves to the truth of God. <coughs> Excuse me. First of all, and these will be very quick, read God's word. I mean, that's the bottom line. Read God's word. Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2 says, Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. You just, you just got to read it. You, that's the, where you start. Second of all, memorize God's truth. Memorize it. The Bible says in Psalm uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves nev never wither, and they never uh, and they prosper in all they do. We've got to memorize it. We've got to take it in. I love how the Message Bible paraphrases those verses. Look what it says. This is awesome. How well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You don't slink along Dead End Road. You don't go to Smart Mouth College. Instead, you thrill to God's word. You chew on scripture day and night. You're a tree replanted in Eden, bearing fresh fruit every month, never dropping a leaf, always in blossom. I love that. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin. 
against you. You know, back in Jesus' day, memorization was huge. In fact, by the age of 10 or 12, the average Jewish child would have, would have the entire Torah memorized. That was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would have it memorized. The Jewish people wanted God's word to be on their hearts. Now, I'm well aware that a lot of people will come up with a lot of excuses of why they can't memorize the scriptures, God's truth. I know because I've come up with a lot of those same excuses that you have. But the reality is this. I'm fully capable of memorizing chunks of the Bible, and so are you. We just need to stop making excuses. And we need to put it in our hearts. So we read it, we memorize it. Thirdly, we've got to obey it. This is the application part of the, of the Bible. We begin to put it into practice by being obedient to it. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 2 through 8, Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I would not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Let me remind you what we talked about earlier. The Bible isn't just about gathering facts and absorbing information. It's about transformation. We don't just read God's truth and then mix and match it with whatever is the popular opinion of the day to determine what we obey. We obey even if we don't fully understand and even if it goes against the grain of the world. We still obey the word of God. And then lastly, trust God's truth. Trust his truth. Psalm 119 verse 138 says, All your teachings are true and trustworthy. Never forget God can be trusted. He never fails to do what he says he is going to do. He never lies. He is always truthful. Let's reflect and we'll close. So as we think about being devoted to God's truth, let me ask you again. Are you convinced that the truth of God's word is the building blocks for our daily moment-by-moment -moment lives? Or are you more inclined to mix and match the teachings of the world so that you can rely on yourself, rely on what you think, rely on how you want to live your life? Here's the thing. Our lack of hunger for the truths of God is not necessarily because we don't want his truth, but because we have stuffed ourselves with other things. That's the problem. It's not necessarily because we don't want his truth. It's just there's no room for his truth because we've stuffed ourselves. I love to go to, uh, there's several Mexican restaurants in the area that, that I frequent two or three times a week sometimes because, I, one, I love their soup. But the second thing, but this, this is the thing you notice about if you go to any of the Mexican restaurants. What do they bring out first and foremost? What do they bring out? Chips and salsa, right? Okay, here's the problem. If you're not careful, you can fill yourselves on chips and salsa, right? And then all of a sudden, you don't have any room left for the main course. Why? Because you've stuffed yourself with other things. And now you're full. And let me tell you, that is the exact problem we have when it comes to the Word of God. You see, if you don't feel a strong desire for God's Word, it's not necessarily because you have fed yourself on His truth and are satisfied. 
It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with the small things. And then all of a sudden, there's no room left for the great things of God, his truths. Let me be honest with you. The things and the teachings of this world we live in will never quench the hunger and the thirst that's reserved for God. They never will. David put it like this in Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? What David and what those early believers in Acts 2 discovered was this. Only God can satisfy the hunger that's in your soul. He's the only one. And you can feed on a lot of things of this world, but they will only stuff you and fill you with an imposter. You'll never get the, you'll never get the right stuff until you begin to fill yourself with the truths of God and his word. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this day. And God, I thank you for this time. I thank you that we can come around this place, come to this place, and to worship you and to glorify you, but also to hear your truths. God, help us to understand the importance of devoting ourselves to your truth. And to begin to fill our lives with your truth. To begin to feed our lives on the things that you have for us. Because you have breathed your very life into them. And the only way we're going to truly have life is by taking in yours. And so God just convict us today if that's an issue for us. Help us to get over that, repent of that, and begin to devote ourselves to, to your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.